everyone. A big welcome back to the Nick Elson Show. It's season five, episode 13. They say I'm lucky for some, but very lucky for us, I have Hannah Bailey. Woo! Yay! I love your title. First start, founder of Blue Light Wellbeing. Very cool, and you'll find out why later on. Police officer, now working with others to help mental and emotional health issues, psychotherapist, well-being coach, public speaker, specialist in anxiety, trauma and PTSD. Have you got a TV? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely got a TV. And I need my own channel, I think, now, Nick, <laughs> for all that introduction. You should actually do that. I think that's really cool. It's, I love the, the synchronicity of the world and kind of how our paths have been kind of thrown together. Um, I'd started to notice through the Find Your Voice events that I run that there were more and more people coming that were either ex-services um, or ex-frontline and all of these very, very powerful messages and all of these powerful experiences and, and looking to do some real kind of positive um, goods and positive change and influence other people through those experiences. And, and that's kind of how we, we first linked up. And after our chat, we just got on a house on fire. So I thought I've got to get you on the show. It is a very cool name, Blue Light Wellbeing. So I've given, I given people the overview. So I guess where I want to start with this is tell us about Tell us about little Hannah. Tell us about growing up and then tell us about how you got to the point that we're chatting here today. So little Hannah growing up. Um, what I would say, Nick, is um, I had a lovely upbringing. Um, I had a privileged upbringing and um, I had a family that was together. Um, and I, you know, enjoyed school, I enjoyed sports, I enjoyed my friends. That doesn't mean nothing happens in your life that doesn't upset you, but, you know, I had a, a, a really lovely upbringing, and I'm very lucky and privileged to, to say that. Um, and I think, but what I think it means is, is that because you can often grow up, um, I was educated, I was confident, um, I had people to turn to, um, and I had support. And I think it, and that is lovely, and I'm not knocking any of that at all, but it can also perhaps give you this little bit of false sense of security that, you know, that's how your life is going to go swimmingly along. And um, I also had a, I had a private school education, and very much the message was, is that if you got your education and worked hard, and were, were sort of good, and I'm going to put that in inverted commas of being good or a good person or a good citizen or whatever people want to say, that that's sort of how your life will map out. And it will, you know, and, and perhaps some of the really shit stuff or tragic stuff or difficult stuff won't hit you. And that's just not true at all. And I think we um, are probably still giving kids that message a little bit in school, less so now. And I know we're becoming more aware. But I think we focus it very much on that if you, yeah, if you work hard, get your education and are a good person, then that's how life will map out. And that's just not true. And therefore, when it doesn't go right and, um, you know, life starts to, to fall apart, the seams as it did for me later on, I was absolutely not only, um, you know, sort of felt like I'd been run over by a bus, but didn't have a clue what to actually do about it or how to help myself or how to get back up off my knees from despair and rebuild myself. So I, I'm not at all knocking the childhood I had and that's brilliant, but it didn't perhaps give me those skills for when it all fell apart. And I think there is that misconception of kind of broken people come from broken environments. And as we both know, that can absolutely be true. But also it can absolutely not be true as well. You can, as you say, you have the right environment for success, for happiness, for love, whatever you need, but stuff can still go wrong along the way. And actually, very much we had this conversation around financial well-being recently with a guest on the show, given the kind of the cost of living crisis and everything else we're experiencing, that our relationship with life and with money and everything else is defined by that period, isn't it? So if you're not used to being careful with money you have no respect for money if you get told that there's nothing bad's going to get you you're not going to be very resilient when it does happen now yeah. you've alluded to a situation which brought you despair which um took you to your knees are you happy to share that with us today 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's um, just a really important part of it. And I think, as you said, I'm glad you talked about that background first, because um, it did sort of hit me like a ton of ton of bricks, really. Um, but if I go back a little bit before that happened, if that's OK, as you, as you said at the start, um, I'm an ex-police officer. So um, so I was in the police from the age of 21. Um, where you know everything, don't you, Nick, at 21? So oh, absolutely. That's it. You've made it, you're sorted, you know everything at 21, and that's definitely Where was that I decision, thought. by the way? Where did that decision come from? Was it something you've always wanted to do? What, what was the reason why you wanted to do that role? Yeah, not at all, actually. I had, um, I'd gone to uni to do physiology um, and forensics up at Edinburgh. Not necessarily forensics, anything to do with the police, just um, interested in that field of study, but didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. Just that sort of going to uni, because you kind of, again, expected to, the private girls' school education, surely that's what you do. Never ever on a careers day was it talked about you joining the police um, at a private girls school ever. So it was all very expected of me. And but I didn't really have a clue what I wanted to do with that at all. And then uh, there were some family issues, which I won't go into, but I came home to um, that's in the Midlands and I was up in Edinburgh to help with that. And I was going to reapply to Birmingham Uni and finish my studies there. Um, and I joined the specials, so I don't know if people um, know much about the specials, but they're the volunteer police. Um, it's a very weird role, actually, Nick, because you are given full uniform and full powers and about three days training. So it is, I mean, it really is just throwing the deep end. Yeah, and specials go out with other specials on duty. So it is um, the blind leading the blind, to be really honest. And I'm not knocking specials because they do some fantastic work, but it was a very weird process. Um, and but actually, Nick, I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And so I was in the specials for a year and I just thought rather than going back to uni to do something, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do anything with. Mm. Um, here is something that potentially I, I could have as a career that I'd be good at. So, yeah, so I joined um, at 21. So it was very out the blue. Um, family weren't expecting it at all, but were very supportive. And and I did. And I will say to those listening, you know, I, I loved it. It was my career. It was my identity as well, a passion. Um, and I did absolutely love it. Um, but yes, did I did I have my eyes opened at 21? Um, and I went to sort of work in, um, you know, sort of inner city in Westminster Police. So uh, very, very different, actually, to the life that I'd I'd grown up in and I'm pleased I saw it actually because I saw the other end of of human life and what people obviously I saw some hideous end of human life but actually I saw another just another um angle to human life of struggling and great people I think people meet think you meet only horrible people in the police you don't at all I met some amazing people um in the community and colleagues so um yeah so I had a career that I loved um, but I'm sure as you're learning with people coming to your talks, Nick, it takes its toll. Um, and that that job, that lifestyle, the trauma, the shifts, the um, sort of how you're treated sometimes takes starts to take its toll. And um, so I was in for nearly 15 years. And it definitely in the last few years before that had started to take its toll on me. I wouldn't now, I wouldn't have at the time, Nick, said that was mental health. Um, you know, police didn't talk about mental health and we didn't say we were suffering from mental health and we don't we didn't know anything about mental health at all. Um, but I was looking back, the phrase, the titles now would be compassion, fatigue, burnout, mm. overwhelm. Um, and I was really, really struggling. Um, and I didn't say I didn't know what I would have said, actually, or who I would have said it to. Um, so I didn't. And I just kept going and kept going and kept going. And then um, when I was 34, so in 2011, I got breast cancer and it was just not only a complete and utter shock. I was 34. I was sort of physically healthy. I remember a nurse commenting on all those tick box forms that you do about your health and your blood pressure and your weight and your drinking and your smoking and all that. And bless her, she said, oh, perfect health. And there was this sort of pause. I said, well, apart from the cancer, but yeah, perfect health. So physically, I was very, I looked very healthy on paper, but mentally and emotionally, I was not um, at all, as in before cancer and obviously struggling with cancer as well. Um, so it, it not only was a complete shock, um, but I, 
I will say that the the one of the light bulb moments about how bad perhaps work had got and, and life a little bit, my lifestyle, I would say, is I was relieved. I and that's a weird emotion. Um, and very quickly after being diagnosed with cancer, I was relieved. And that was I realized I was relieved that I didn't have to go into work. And I didn't have to face, yeah, I know, exactly. I don't mean I was relieved I got cancer, that would be too far to say, but I was, yeah, but I was relieved. And I will say, Nick, I was relieved that I had a good reason, a good excuse to be off work. Interesting. Because, it often yeah. goes hand in hand with that feeling of guilt if you're not on the clock. Right, exactly. And never, ever at that time, Nick, would I have gone off work for mental health or stress. Never, ever. I just wouldn't have done it. And it was taboo and you'd have been slagged off and, you know, I wouldn't have done it. But cancer, that's all right. You've got a good enough excuse. Yeah, And that's awful. Is that not awful to say? But that's truthfully. It is, but the, the way you say it, the, the reason why I smile at that is because sadly, you're right. I mean, it becomes more socially acceptable to say that. So it becomes a bit of a relief. A lot yeah. of, funny enough, a lot of people said that about kind of COVID and stuff and lockdown and the fact that actually they've got no valid excuses not to see people yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and that we need an excuse to say, I need to take some time out for my health or my care. And I thought I've got a good excuse. You know, I know everybody would have been dis dished out my jobs and my files and all that. And I did sit and think, well, they can't slag me off because I've got cancer, so they'll be the arse, basically, if they slag me off. That's what was going through my head, and that's... Do you think so the... Sad. It's off the wall here, but do you think that your compassion fatigue actually helped enable you to be able to be more selfish in, in the, the nicest, truest sense of the word selfish, to, to give yourself that time and to, to say no and, and to, to switch off? Uh, yes and no. Um, definitely a little bit because my compassion fatigue really was to do with um, victims and jobs at work. I was just really struggling to find that kindness and compassion again and again and again with the jobs that were poured on us. Um, so yes, it helped me switch off probably quite quickly from them. As I said, just relieved really that I didn't have to deal with them anymore. Mm. Um, but not from, um, I didn't have the same level of numbness, which is really probably what compassion fatigue would be summed up by. I didn't have that same numbness about like my colleagues and my job. And, and so I was bothered what they thought. And I was worried about that. And as I said, glad that there was sort of a, a good enough reason for me to be off. So yeah, a bit, a bit of both, I would say. And did your experiences of seeing the other side of life, did it taint the way that you see everything did it change the way that you were when you come home when you you're kind of literally down uniform and you were you again yeah 100 percent. and um in that time of the 15 years i'd had children as well and that very very um quite definitely changed how i judged people um it's quite a judgmental job the police we want to say it's not but it is and there's almost nothing you can do about that you have to use your judgment every single day of going to jobs and speaking to people and dealing with scenes and meetings and files and court so you you actually do have to be judgmental but it made you sort of cynically judgmental a lot yes um and it also made you catastrophize um all the time Wow. I all the time um, and yes yeah, sort of seeing sort of either the the bad or the catastrophe or the tragedy or the whatever um, on the end of everything so yes it definitely and with that catastrophization did you find it went the other way as well did you find very often you would ruminate on things that have gone as well or were you were you pretty good at being able to switch off and disconnect from an experience once it's gone harrowing things that's, that's yeah. the elephant in the room here you deal with some really shitty sides of life at, at that point yeah 100 percent. and i think every officer or every emergency service worker would agree with this that it, we do see some awful stuff but actually probably what started to get me down was um this the stuff that you could do nothing about most police officers join because cliched or not, you'd like to sort of do some good or help others or make some changes. Mm. And, you know, when we did do that, if the job was particularly harrowing, but if you, even if you felt you'd done something, changed something, helped somebody, you could take some, you know, some reward from that, some value from that. And therefore that helped you deal with it and put it behind. I think it was the jobs that 
um, maybe perhaps weren't as harrowing, but so frustrating, Nick, you know, so difficult, so many obstacles to helping people um, or getting justice or supporting people. There were so many obstacles and they got more and more as the job went on and politics became more involved in the police and so on. So, yeah, it became wasn't so much not being able to leave them. It was um, the ones that you felt you hadn't got anywhere or resulted in anything, yeah. despite 12 months of work or something like that or support yeah it's a bit of both yeah so actually you end up kind of assuming that kind of wounded healer role that you, you give and give and give and give but actually maybe you as a police officer it, it, that's the bit that you don't look after it's it's everybody else that you try and help and give and i guess that's kind of where you're encouraged to find your worth through is what you do for the community but there wasn't the same focus on what you do for yourself and especially in that perfect storm of events that you experience is that right yeah, 100%. You know, again, most police officers will work and work and work to try and get some sort of result. And as you said, you forget, therefore, you in the background as any sort of person or any other role that you might have, like for me, a wife and a mom, a sister, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And then the other side of it is is some isolation, really, outside of work, because, um, I mean, I'm actually lucky, my husband is a police officer, too. So at least we do have that support and that bond. But you know, otherwise there wasn't really anybody I could talk to. Um, my friends, my family and stuff didn't understand the role. And obviously because of data protection, you can't talk about it all as well. So there was an isolation factor to it as well. How difficult was it to to help people that were, were being aggressive, offensive to you? I've always found kind of, I've not obviously been in that role myself, but I've always found it must be really difficult to try and help somebody that's going out of their way to make your life extremely difficult at the at the easiest, let alone everything else that can happen in terms of violence and, and aggression. How easy is it to kind of disconnect that that personal opinion that you have or that personal kind of feeling that actually, because the, the, the human reaction is if somebody is aggressive in front of you, you either raise the meat or you run away. And obviously those two options aren't valid. So how do you deal with that? Well, we were trained quite well in that, which is excellent. You know, we did have to do practical training a lot on how to de-escalate a situation. As You know, that would always be the option, if at all possible, would be to try and engage, um, to talk to people, to reason with people or so on, um, to try and de-escalate a situation. That didn't always work, as you say. And then sometimes you would have to up that escalation and, it, and, and situations obviously could be rough, certainly, or violent. Um, but actually, Nick, what's interesting is that bit wasn't so hard not to take personally. It wasn't. You had this uniform, a bit of a veneer, a bit of, you know, that's just the job that we're sent out to do. And we'll try and do that to the best of our ability that we can do. What actually was more difficult is that let's say you, you bring somebody into custody who has been hitting and kicking and spitting. We got spat at. I think it's the most horrible, horrible thing that we would be spat at. It was horrible called every name under the sun da, 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 da. and so often that usually happened when people were high on drink or drugs mm. that was the most common or certain areas of mental health um and so what would happen is they'd have to sit in the cells until they come down off those drink or drugs or calm down or see a doctor or so on and had some medication and actually the next day you would often interview them and they were lovely i know you're going to think that's a really odd thing to say but these were nice people a lot of the time. They were sorry, remorseful. They did often have a shit background. I'm not saying that that's an excuse. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that, but that is truthful. That's honest. And we have to look at that too. And, um, you know, they just were stuck in this cycle of crime and violence and drugs um, going in and out of prison and, and pretty desperate people. So actually it was, it, that was almost harder because you were just faced with a human being who was having a really shy time. Yeah, I guess um, it's easier to be kind of a, a more resentful to somebody who's being a dick than it is to right, somebody. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's easy to go, they're being a dick, I did it, did it, lock them up, did it, like that. That's the sort of tough exterior thing that, that most of us could do. And actually what touched me more and probably followed me home more was the real people underneath were struggling and could do with some help. And I'm not taking away their own responsibility for the crimes they committed and stuff like that. I know there's many, many layers to it. Yeah. But ultimately, they probably could have done with a, a better start and some help and support and advice and therapy. And, and that probably would have been a better way. So it, it yeah, that kind of possibly was tougher than getting kicked and hit and spat at sort of thing. Not saying that it was nice either, but yeah. No. 
I guess on that theme, I posted on LinkedIn recently around the work I'm doing in the prison service around the the speaking coaching element of what I do, not the mental health stuff per se, but the, the speaking coaching and using that as kind of like a transformational tool. Now, you very kindly commented that um, your experience of that actually was that you see so many people repeat offending due to the lack of investment in education, development, that kind of stuff. I guess with that in mind, is that a big driver for what you do now? Yeah, I think so, because I I just think I'm not, as I said, I'm not dissolving responsibility of people, particularly in adults, less so children, children, but particularly in adults, I know there has to be a point of whatever has happened to you in your life that you take some responsibility for your actions and behaviours in the community, 100%. So I don't tend to get into sort of the punishment side, whether somebody should or shouldn't go to prison and that side of thing. I think that's an, another remit. Yeah. But if people have gone to prison, do I think then we would all be better off, prisoners as well as the community and everybody who works in those services, if those prisoners were given a chance. That, And I mean proper therapy, support, education. A lot of them haven't got any education, have got no structure, have got no chance or hope. The system is set up to fail when prisoners come out. Mm -hmm. um, and that I just, to me, it's a no brainer because everybody would benefit, everybody, potential future victims, please CPS, prison service prisoners and all their families, everybody would benefit if we did that differently. Yeah, um, yeah it's a massive, and, and, and look, and, and then that extends out to everybody, doesn't it, Nick? If we yeah. try to look at the underlying reason of why somebody, as you said, was being a dick, like put a title on it, <laughs> then, you know, yeah, actually how much better could we all be if we understood that, learned from it and changed from that point onwards? Yeah, absolutely. And to me, it's, it's what's the other choice? The other choice is you don't develop or inspire or educate anybody. And like you say, the, the pattern repeats again. It's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, sorry. Sorry. There's a fascinating book, The Prison Doctor, um, that I read. And um, she works in, you know, sort of high security. I think she's in a female prison now, but has been in a, um, a male prison as well. And she says, you know, I would say 90% of inmates are victims of their own sort of trauma, background, education and so on. And um, she massively, massively um, is on that page that we're just talking about, you know, and, and even before prison, you know, could we do could we do things differently to stop it getting to there? Um, so I know it's a massive, massive thing, but if we don't start just doing it bit by bit, then it ain't going to change, is it? So no, absolutely. I mean, this is a generalism, of course. It doesn't apply to every care lever, but I do a lot of work with care leavers and people that come from really kind of troubled backgrounds, especially those who haven't had a real positive association with men. Uh, I think also in in the domestic abuse kind of uh, environment as well. It's it's a place that I kind of work in, and it is an interesting one that in those situations that just even one spark or one thought of, of inspiration and an idea can really change everything. Um, the one that stands out for me, I was, I was doing a, a care leaver, uh, just a webinar actually during lockdown for uh, care leavers in, in uh, one of the London boroughs. And there was um, a young lady on there that was kind of really not in a good place. And, and she was saying she wants to pursue this kind of hairdressing, this kind of salon kind of stuff. And, and she's kept in, in touch since and she's pursuing that now. And I think sometimes all people need is the hope or, or the hope of something better. And I think that the problem we have right now, societally, is even people that are in normal situations haven't got that hope because it's really hard to, to kind of manage all the change that's going on, all the backdrop of global conflict, cost of living crisis, obviously, as we record this on the 15th of September, we had the Queen uh, passing last week, and all these different things going on, it has an effect on our global consciousness. But if you compound that with a really poor, uh, troubled upbringing with really poor um, conditioning elements of what they've experienced, it's tough, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And so many people say to me, and I'm glad again, we talked about backgrounds, because so many people say to me, you know, well, it's your responsibility what you do with it. You don't have to go out and act like that and commit crime. And I and I agree. And as we've said, I agree. Yeah. But do I think that when I was in my shit, really dark place, and I'll sort of move on a little bit with that, because it sort of went on a little bit for me, and it did go on and on over a couple of years. 
was it easier for me to make better choices from that place because I'd got family, support, finances. Um, you know, my work was paying me full pay to be off for nine months. There's not many jobs that would do that. So I had my finances covered. I had support and family. I had education behind me. So did that make it easier for me to research and, you know, sort of reach out and talk to people? Yeah, it did. So even though I was in this hideous place, my background meant I, it was easier for me to make better choices and responsible choices. And I don't, and so if you put, you know, somebody else in my position, but had a completely and utterly different background or support system, yeah. would they make different choices to me? Probably. Yeah. I really resonate um, with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Really well put. Thank you for that. Um, so going back to your, your story, cause I really want to kind of progress this yeah. story and cool. I really want to take you back there, but I don't really want to yeah, take no, you back there. You know what I, mean? I want to go back to your story. You, you hit this kind of perfect storm of, situations you had obviously the breast cancer uh, diagnosis you also had uh, the mental health challenges that were going on at the time what was the comeback like from those points on both of those levels well the first time um i sort of kind of got did the sort of grit your teeth and get on with it and i'm going to battle this and i'm gonna survive this and da, 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 which i'm not saying is a bad thing i say that a bit flippantly but I'll say a little bit why that kind of changed for me. So I kind of did the stoic, let's just get on. And a lot of cancer people now who do see me say, I just want my old life back. And that was sort of it for me. I just, just want my old life back. And um, now I say to people, well, your old life was making you sick. So, you know, to be fair, no, <laughs> you can bring things from your old life. Yeah. I'm going to be hard. Bring things from your old life that were working for you. You've got to be blunt sometimes, Nick, haven't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, yeah. it was making you sick. So, you know, so bring things from your old life that you love and that were working for you. Brilliant. But there's definitely going to be stuff in that old life that were making you sick. And they've got to go. We've got to look at how we can change them and what they were. But I, yeah, so I didn't really, I was in the, I want my old life back. I did look at some stuff. I look, looked at sort of my diet and tried to be a bit healthier. Um, but really, otherwise, not huge changes in that time. And I went back to work nine months later, sort of promising myself it'd be different, but not really a plan as to why that would be different. And again, that's part of, so the talk I do is that it's good to be aware, but you then actually have to do something as well. <laughs> and kind of that's the bit I was missing a little bit. So I was aware it wasn't great, but actually what I was doing probably wasn't, well, it wasn't changing much. Mm. So I went back to work and then within three months though, my cancer had come back. So are you truly being heard in life and in business? And think about that genuinely. If the answer to that is no, then you've found the right event. If you want to give yourself that boost personally and professionally, come along to find your voice live. This is will change your life. It's, this will be the game changer that you've been looking for. It provides me with the confidence in myself to prove to myself that I can do it, I can get up on stage, I can speak. There's absolutely nothing to be nervous about with these events. It's very, very open, very, very relaxed. Help my confidence go from here at the beginning of the day to here at the end of the day. Hey everyone, my name is Nick Elston. I'm an inspirational speaker on the lived experience of mental health and a transformational speaking coach. I'm the founder of Forging People and Find Your Voice Live is our flagship event where we cross the boundaries of personal development, mental health, transformation and public speaking. Your ability to speak, to deliver any message to any audience with clarity and power and emotion will have an ultimately defining impact on your success by your own definition of that really subjective term. Speaking is life, speaking is business, speaking is education, and that's the thing that we focus on most. What I find is that people are here for many, many different reasons. Some people do absolutely want to be a stage speaker or a professional speaker. Some people want to be able to represent their business uh, or to lead a team or inspire a movement or create a story. But even actually, some people want to be here just because they want to feel they want to be heard at home. Maybe they, they don't feel their opinions being heard, that they can't say yes to the things they want to say yes to or no to the things they want to say no to. Again, this is where personal development meets mental health, meets public speaking to create a real positive impact. At the end of Find Your Voice Live, you will walk away with massive confidence around delivering your message. The ability to stand up and deliver means you will enhance your self-esteem, 
in an amazing way. You will also have the skills and tools and tips and techniques to not only deliver a presentation, but to structure a presentation, to find your audience, to be able to deliver emotional storytelling to help your audience feel and make them want to be part of your tribe, make them want to be part of their, your following and really tune into what you're truly about, to truly make yourself heard in life and in business. If you're sat on the fence, if you're still not sure, take the model that I use, say yes, worry about it later, and I'll make sure that you're looked after brilliantly. Myself and my team will make sure that you have an amazing day, a transformational day, that will have the desired positive impact that you want to achieve. So I was just facing another diagnosis, worse this time, it had mutated, it was very rare, very aggressive. Um, they told me uh, chemo probably wouldn't uh, really work on this type of cancer. Um, so yeah, kind of it was probably almost worse the second time because you sort of think you've, you've convinced yourself, you've done it and you've got through it and do it like this and isn't it all brilliant? And no, is really the answer, no. Um, so whatever I was doing or wasn't doing, whatever hadn't worked. And I realized that I really, really now needed that kick up the arse, I'll be blunt, to actually change stuff. My life, my lifestyle, mentally, emotionally, physically, it all needed a big fat reset. Um, so I, I was very, very despairing for months. I had massive surgery. I had a mastectomy, but a reconstruction and it's massive. Um, but I also put my own plan together because I realized that don't mean that the NHS weren't going to help me. That sounds horrible, but they didn't actually really have the answers um, except the surgery, which they hoped would be um, enough. But having had it twice, didn't feel it would be enough. Mm. And so I thought um, and I kept asking Nick, I kept asking doctors and nurses and oncologists, why did I get sick? Why have I got cancer? And they all said, you're just unlucky. And that just wasn't good enough, actually, if I'm really honest. It, no, you don't get cancer because you're unlucky, although it is pretty unlucky. But you know what I mean? You don't get it because you're lucky. You get it because you're sick. And no one really wanted to talk about why that was. And so I thought, I'm going to have to learn this for myself. Why am I sick? What's gone wrong? And what will make me better? Completely better. Not just move a lump from your breast. I mean, completely better mentally, emotionally, and physically, and spiritually, all of those I looked at. So I put a plan together um, and went about uh, anything you can think of. I went to speakers like yourself. I went to um, weekends. I read books. I went to therapy. I did energy healing. Um, and I went, to, as I said, I found, I went to specialists up and down the country. And I just thought, I'm going to find what will work for me. And as I said, I went to Germany to, to be treated by an oncologist there. Um, and I changed my mindset. I changed my diet. I changed my life. As I said, I changed all the things that were shit before I got ill, basically. I kept the stuff I loved that supported me and helped. And the rest went. And so I, came, I had to come to a decision about the police as well. And was this going to be in the bracket of, the stuff that was serving me and supporting me and helping me be well, or was it the stuff that needed to go? And I will say that was a heartbreaking decision because I kind of knew it was probably killing me, really, let's be really blunt. But or the way I dealt with it was killing me, not just going to say the job was, but the way I was dealing with it was killing me. Um, but I loved it. You know, I did. And, it, and as I said, it was my identity. I'd done it since I was 21. I had no qual other qualifications, no degree. Um, and who would I be? What would I do? And who would I be if I wasn't a police officer? Um, there's definitely a certain amount of power that goes with the police. We don't like to use that word, but it is truthful. Um, there's identity. There's interest. Like people think you're interesting if you're in the police. People are like, wow, that's good. That's it. What do you do? What do you do today? What like that? Who do you yeah, meet? Yeah. Like that. Everybody <laughs> says that. Is it like, is it like line of duty? Is it like, you know, it's an interesting thing to be in the police. So I felt like and I was. And also a unique flavour of camaraderie as well, notably. This is, is, is very much unlike most environments. 
Yeah, 100%. And when people say about the police being your family, that is true. They are like your second. Certainly if you've got good teams and stuff, and I was very lucky to have a lot of good teams and supervisors, and um, they are like your family, and it was like leaving them. And, and also, Nick, I was very aware from being off nine months, whether this is right or wrong, but once you're out of sight, it is out of mind in the police. If you've moved on, you've moved on. And, and I get that. They're all busy and they've got new teams and new jobs to do. And 100%, at first I was really hurt by it. I'm not now. It's, it's human nature. And they were struggling on with their stuff um, and their tough job. And I was out the way and not remembered. And I don't say that martyrishly. It's just true. And so I knew. Sorry, there was a delay. I'm better trained than speak over to somebody, so I do apologise. I <laughs> oh, don't worry at all. We had a, a, a guest on um, last season, a guy called Brad Burson, who um, was the founder of Four Networking, uh, and we were talking about this subject actually, that the, in terms of organisations and networking organisations and people that you see regularly that when you do leave that I think it's just one of those things as human nature is that you you deal with your immediate so circle of influence and and very rarely do you actually find that 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 lasts uh, and you can look back and see the people that actually come with you through life are actually very very few aren't they in terms of yeah. consistently um so yeah but I've, I also feel that do you actually find them working as you do now do you miss the community of having people around you because I know firsthand with what you do as a speaker, as a coach, same same with what I do, that you're very often in front of people, but it doesn't mean you're with people. So if I'm working in an office environment for a day, for example, I love that. I'll hang around the water cooler, even if they're not my colleagues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll chat to them anyway. So yeah. <laughs> you chat to me, please talk to me. But yeah, I'll even use the word quite lonely sometimes. It can be quite lonely, kind of that kind of life out there, just doing your own thing very often away or on the road and, and, and being in front of people. We're not really with people. Yeah, 100%. And um, the only thing I'd say that I perhaps get um, more out of it, um, I don't mean than you do, that's the wrong phrase, but what, what I do get out of it is that obviously I'm contact, I'm back in contact with a lot of police officers because or certainly emergency services, but those people that you felt were a bit your tribe, if that's the right word, or your group, or that kind of thing. And I am back in touch with them, and that is that's a lovely from a different angle and a different that's space. Cool. But it is nice. So you're, but you're right. It is. I mean, I work from home as as a one to one therapist. But so I love getting out to doing talks and you know sort of events and stuff. But you're right. You're still running the show as such, and you're talking to people. Um, but yeah it's it's still getting back in touch with some of those um i don't mean necessarily people that i knew just people with that shared bond that common bond yeah. and so that's a nice place to do it as well yeah. but yeah it can be i do miss that team that yeah. team that camaraderie so yeah. you left um and obviously in terms of you started that recovery process um then you went on to learn psychology counseling all these different things coaching again what did that journey feel like were you like was it formed by your experiences for your own recovery what things would suit you best to actually practice a little bit of both yes um although i try to sort of vary it because obviously what necessarily worked for me wouldn't necessarily work for, for others coming to me so i've tried to do a variety but yeah. yes so for example i particularly went for well-being coaching first rather than counseling because Counseling to me obviously completely has its place of, of talking therapy. And if people come to me, they absolutely have that space if they need it. Um, but what I had learned that, that made the most difference to me and what I was like is I wanted something to do. I want to kind of learn about it or have a structure or what could I change and so on. And I felt so the coaching structure is, is more along those lines than perhaps um, the talking therapy of the past. So yes, yeah, so that definitely um, shaped which sort of routes I went along. As you said, tools and techniques and things that had been very beneficial for me. I think I said to you, I trained in energy healing first. It's the thing I trained in because it had helped so much for me. Um, and Is actually, that like Reiki yeah. healing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, mine's called reconnective healing. Okay. Um, so it's a little different to Reiki, but they're all very similar in in how they're done and how they're taught and how they're delivered. And I love that actually, Nick, because it, it's not something that the emergency services go for first. <laughs> I'll be honest. They don't ring up and say, can you do that energy healing with me? Um, 
but it gives you definitely like this lovely connection energy is an incredible thing to work with and to read um and to yeah to understand so i'm really really pleased i, I did that it was it was beautiful um but yes also wanted to do some of the perhaps more practical things that would encourage emergency service staff to come and see Thanks. me and in terms of your recovery, you, you came back from Germany and, and how did it go from there? Well, Germany was an ongoing treatment. So you go um, at first, I had to go every month for four months. So it's quite time consuming. Um, but then that soon petered off to in the end, I went every six months. And actually, Nick, that only stopped because of COVID. Um, I would have carried that on for 10 years. Um, of going every six months and then I would so about now because it's 10 years on I would have stopped um, but it was very successful for me very safe very effective treatment um, not here to say that that's for everybody but I suppose what I want to say to people I guess with anything any obstacle that's put in your way or mental health physical health whatever if the advice or what you're being given isn't good enough or okay for you it is okay to look elsewhere that's not me saying go against medical advice nothing like that that's not my place but for me it wasn't good enough it wasn't okay what we had on offer here and it's okay to go and look and search and and say okay i'd like i'd like something different for me um, with whatever you're looking at um so go make it work for you if it's not working um, i think that's really same really i get that completely um yeah, and very often, like you said, it's, it's we're treating the symptom, not the problem, like you like you were saying, and I think it's quite an important point to make. Um, can I ask how you, how you are now? Yeah, really fine, thank you. Ten years on and no issues, no problems, nothing Amazing at all. Amazing news. Oh, yeah. great stuff. Thank you. And yeah. tell us about your first speaking engagement. <laughs> this, this is the bit that always, because oh. a lot of people will talk about the last one, because it's usually the biggest one or the, the most... But I want the, the first one, the first experience of standing up in front of people to speak. Gosh, it was a, a small event at a local gym. Yeah. Really lovely gym that were looking at people's mental health and well-being as well as physical, which is ACE. Um, and so I reckon it was probably about... I'm gonna. I got off the top of my head, 2015. Like, not 100% sure, but around then. And just again, like I'm sort of saying to you, and about my story and what I've been through and what I'd learned along the way. Um, but what and you learn. I mean, you must think this, Nick, but I think you learn from every speaking event you do. And you can oh, say, absolutely. you know, this is brilliant. This just did not go so well. I love talking about this. This yeah. didn't resonate. So every speaking gig. I think still you you learn from, don't you? But one of the things I learned, I admit, is, John, I really resonate. That's what I'm sorry for laughing. It's, it's really resonating. Oh. There's things in my mind. I think that's going to be amazing. Everyone's going to burst out laughing when I say this thing. Nothing. Tumbleweeds everywhere. <laughs> and there's sorry. things I trip over that everyone just bursts out laughing. I thought, right, that's keeping that staying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so. Um, one of the things I do remember is that um, I felt I could talk about my story absolutely fine without any wobble at all. And there's a line in a talk that I do that I say um, that in June 2011, I found a lump and I went to break. I just like my voice broke. My I had tears in my eyes. I had to really kind of try and really bring it back. Now, I'm not saying, Nick, that you shouldn't be human in a talk, by the way. I think people relate to that anyway. So I don't mean you have to hide all emotion, but as in I really had to work not to break down and cry. Yeah. And I thought, oh, you haven't practiced enough saying that line. I, I didn't think it would be that line that caught me, if that makes sense. You never do, no. You just You're don't, right. do you? You, you can say all some really shit stuff and breezily <laughs> go through it. And then sometimes a line just gets you. And that was the line that got me. And um, and I've and so actually one of the things is I really practice saying that line quite normally and quite practically and quite calmly in really safe um, places so that when I have to say it in the talk, um, as I said, a human reaction is fine, but I don't particularly want to break down and cry either. So it's that sort of line, isn't it? Um, so yeah, yeah, so I remember it particularly for that. But I did also love it, and people were lovely and and yeah so that was yeah was and i think we can all understand why they loved it as well i think you, you're a great example of being able to feel what somebody says not just hear what they say and i mean that's one of the the, the strongest principles that i use is to try and focus on how you leave the room with people feeling 
do you do they do they want to be like I said be one of they want to be part of your tribe part of your group when you've left the room or actually do they want to run out as quick as possible that's happened too uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so right now then so with blue light well-being so I want to talk about the difference between because I'm imagining you don't exclusively work with ex or current police officers. You also work with members of the public as well and other groups and social groups. Is that correct? Uh, a bit of both, yes. So when it started, obviously, sort of my speciality, if you like, is police and ex police, but then also emergency services. So NHS and ambulance, fire search and rescue veterans as well. I'm not saying that I fully understand being in the army because I don't, and that's another different role. Um, but there's definitely some similarities and bonds um, that we have with the armies, with the armed forces as well. Um, so yes, that's my speciality. And I absolutely work with um, other members of the public too. So it's not just exclusive to that. I do sometimes get to a point where things are so busy that actually I close my waiting list for civilians, I would call it, yeah. and, and just focus so that those spaces are there for the emergency services when they come in. Um, yeah. But then I open it up again. So I try and sort of have a little bit of a give and take around it, yeah. And do you find a difference in uh, the willingness to, to talk and be open between gender within the, the the police force as well yeah definitely can be um, a challenge like from a civilian point of view but i'm thinking given the community and commonality that you have is it any easier to be more open with one of your own in that sense yeah i think so i mean two one of the things i also really learned nick and it's it's fab isn't it when these things just work out right when when i first was sort of qualified and working i really hoped that a police force would take me on you know pay me to work with their officers and so on but, but that didn't happen and now I'm really glad because what a lot of people want is they love that somebody understands what they do, mm. which is great, um, but they don't want somebody attached to their force and their employment that because often what they're talking about is very sensitive, very private, perhaps they feel whether that's wrong or right is a risk to their yeah. job as well or a risk to their rank or position. And a lot of people do not want to go through OCH Health and HR because they feel that they're talked about again, whether rightly or wrongly. But they reasons, like yeah, about, yeah, and also that I think they feel there's possibly an agenda, as in how quickly can I get them back to work, or could I even get them to resign if it's so bad? That kind of stuff. Wow. Um, yeah, I've had that said to me. Um, like you, so you maintain that neutrality. I mean, I find exactly the same with with what I do, although. As, as you know, and everyone else knows, I'm not solution focused, but people will end up telling me stuff. I don't even tell their GP because actually I'm from outside the organization. So yeah. it's a safer way of, and then obviously I signpost them to amazing people like you and everything else that do do great stuff. But um, it is an interesting dynamic, but even, so I'm 44, so generationally, you've got an extra element of, we've been told not to trust work with our personal stuff even though things like EAPs and therapy and counselling is confidential and anonymous, we don't have the faith in that. So it could be really hard to take down those barriers, couldn't it? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it just means that, and one of the things I do say to people when they come, I'm nothing to do with your, I mean, when I say nothing to do with force, if, like if forces pay me to go and do a workshop or a talk, then obviously they're paying me to do that. And they'll ask me to look at certain objectives or outcomes for the talk. But yeah. in one-to-one -one therapy, I am nothing to do with your force. I have mm. no agenda other than what is absolutely right and best for you. And I think it's a really nice, you know, I'm not feeding back to anybody. I haven't got to write reports on you so that they know I utterly have their back of what is, what is the right route or choices mm. for them. It's so important to have that kind of, trust and confidence and safety in who you're talking to. I mean, even though I've worked in a space spot for eight years now, that when I first went to a new counsellor in January 2021, um, the I went through those same checks and measures that to start with, you think, can I trust this person? Are they safe? Are they? And so it's absolutely human, isn't it? To want to know that you're in an environment where it's not judgmental, it's not fed back. And you're there with the position of helping them, not as an agenda for somebody else. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, you'll have heard as well, Nick, about sort of um, banter and dark humour and stuff like that in, in the emergency services. And they can come and be really honest with me about that and get that I understand and I'm not going to be judgmental or shocked by it or whatever. And, and yeah. also because they can talk about policy, procedure, jobs and stuff like that, knowing 
something that I do understand what they're talking about as well in the service and that, you know, because a lot of the problems are either the jobs they're dealing with plus the service and the, the force support or lack of it, then they know that I, I can understand that background too. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I've loved chatting to you today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate no giving up your busy and important time uh, to be with us on the show. But before I let you go and back into the wilds of the West Midlands, are you still in the West Midlands? I'm still in the West Midlands, yeah. yeah. So before I let you go back into the wilds of the West Midlands, I want to ask you this crucial question, which forms part of the playlist that will happen at the end of season five. I am about to announce you to the stage on the MC of the O2 Arena. 20,000 people have paid their harder money to come and hear you do your thing. You're sat back in the green room. You hear me introduce your name and your walk on music kicks in. That song that motivates you, that lifts you, that gets you at peak state. Hannah Bailey, what would your walk on music be and why? My walk on music would definitely be Dancing Queen by Abba. <laughs> <laughs> nice. because uh one of the things that i changed i love dancing and one of the things i changed before i got sick i used to say i couldn't go back to dancing because either i wasn't the right weight or i wasn't good enough or whatever everyone would be better than me uh, when i go i'll go when i'm fitter or slimmer or whatever it is or better whatever i thought and i didn't go and when i got cancer i thought you idiot you <laughs> missed out on all that time dancing and i love it nick so i go to dance class and i love dancing and it just I don't know, I just feel like a freedom. It lifts my energy, it lifts my mood. And for me, those are the kind of things that you should find and fill your life with. So yeah, that's why. Love that. Thank you very much. Hannah Bailey, a big round of applause. Yay, thanks Nick. <laughs> Been so nice chatting to you. Thank you oh, so much absolutely for having me on. I hope everybody else has enjoyed it as much as I have as well. Such a great chat. Please do connect with Hannah. I'm sure she'd be really happy to hear from you and be connected and all that kind of stuff. Links are in the bio. Um, so please keep an eye out and stay tuned. Hit like, subscribe and all that jazz, whatever it's going to take to bring you back for the next episode. Really spooky coincidence. My next guest is a returning guest from season one, uh, the wonderful Louise McMillan, who also shares her own experiences of breast cancer as uh, an inspirational speaker here in the Southwest. So, um, fantastic synchronicity what we've been discussing today um mm. so it'd be good to welcome lou back to the show so please stay tuned for that uh, in the meantime be well take care stay happy cheers guys bye bye bye